much. All right, Hollywood is all abuzz because of the latest blockbusters. And I've not seen either of them. I don't go to many movies. I don't think there's any many movies worth going to. But anyways, Hollywood is all abuzz because of Barbie, which has gone over a billion dollars. And then this film here, Oppenheimer. This film here, thank you, Oppenheimer. And that film is all about J. Robert Oppenheimer, who developed and designed the first atomic bomb. You may not have known this, but he's considered the father of the atomic bomb. J. Robert Oppenheimer. I'm not sure that's the distinguishment you necessarily want for your life. The first atomic bomb was named Little Boy and was dropped on Hiroshima August 6, 1945. And here's a picture of that mushroom cloud over Hiroshima. It was three days later that they dropped a second bomb, this time on Nagasaki, and it was dropped on August 9th. And those bombings ended World War II. Evidently, Germany had already been defeated. Japan was holding on, and with these bombings, the war would end. As to the destruction in these two cities, I looked at different articles. There was one by the Atomic Heritage Foundation, and they had a college professor who evidently was a Japanese professor, and this is what he had to say. I climbed Hikiyama Hill and looked down. I saw that Hiroshima had disappeared. I was shocked by the sight. What I felt then and still feel now, I just can't explain with words. Of course, I saw many dreadful scenes after that, but that experience, looking down and finding nothing left of Hiroshima, was so shocking that I simply can't express what I felt. Hiroshima didn't exist. That was mainly what I saw. Hiroshima didn't exist. And so he's speaking of this unbelievable destruction and devastation and death that took place. The decision to bomb these two cities was made by President Harry Truman. And it only came after a couple of fiercely fought by battles for a couple of islands, Iwo Jima and Okinawa. And it was seen that the Japanese would fight to the end. They were not going to surrender. And Truman and others with him believed that an invasion of mainland China would come at too high of a cost because they would fight to the end. And so there'd be this total devastation. So the decision made to drop these two bombs. Open your Bibles to Joel chapter 3. My message is titled, The Battle of Armageddon. We don't find that phrase in Joel 3. We find it in Revelation 16. But the battle of Armageddon is being described in Joel chapter 3. Our passage today is about the defeat of the world's armies when God acts in judgment on the day of the Lord. And let me say to us this morning, there will be unbelievable destruction and devastation and death. 
as that battle takes place. In fact, in Matthew 24, when Jesus speaks of that time, he says, unless it was cut short, nobody would survive. There would be no survivors. And he's speaking really of this last period, this great tribulation before his second coming. Unbelievable. Unbelievable what happened in World War II with these atomic bombs. But the devastation that's going to take place in the end is going to be, it's beyond our ability to fathom. It really is. Let's review. I always like to review. Today is my last Sunday in the Minor Prophets. And a groan went out from the people. I have loved studying the Minor Prophets. I've never preached them before. And I've really enjoyed digging into the Minor Prophets. Gary Yates, I mentioned Gary Yates. It's not in your notes. You may want to write his name down. He's got a fabulous series on YouTube on the Minor Prophets. But, but he speaks of them as messengers of the covenant. Really, the idea of prophet is this idea of speaking for. And so the prophet spoke for God, holding the people accountable for their obedience or disobedience to the covenants, and in particular, the Mosaic covenant, which had over 600 stipulations. And so they came on the scene because of their disobedience, the nation's disobedience, and their message basically had three or four parts. Number one is you have sinned and broken the covenant. And they would delineate different sins. We looked at that in the book of Malachi. You have sinned and broken the covenant. And so the call to repent and turn from their sin. If they did not repent and turn from their sin, they would experience judgment, the judgment of God. The curses of the covenant would come upon them. But if they would repent, his favor would be restored. A further element in the minor prophets, and not just the minor prophets, but the prophets, is this idea of a future hope of a coming Messiah who's going to make everything right. Do you have that hope placed in a Messiah? Yes, Jesus Christ. First time as a lamb, second time as a lion riding a white horse. So far, we have looked at four prophets. We're in our fourth one. We're not going to look at all 12 of them. We've looked at four of them. First of all, we looked at the book of Habakkuk, probably my favorite minor prophet, just because of what he deals with. I have him as the questioning prophet because he looked around at the nation and he said, God, when are you going to do something? When are you going to do something? Have you ever looked at our nation and asked that question, God, when are you going to do something? And God said to Habakkuk, I am doing something. And I think God says that to us. That was my focus when we looked at Habakkuk. God is doing something today in our world. And God said to Habakkuk, I'm raising up the Babylonians, and they will act as my instrument of discipline against you. And when Habakkuk heard that, he even had a greater question, perhaps we could say. He wanted to say, God, we're bad, deserving of your discipline, but they're a lot worse than we are. How can you do this? And the answer given to the prophet was, the righteous will live by his faith. And, and so Habakkuk, you're going to have to trust me. 
as all of this unfolds, we just sang a song, I will wait on you. God's timing can seem so off in our lives, can it? And we're called to live this way. We live by faith based upon the promises of God. Oh, the message of the prophets is, is for us today. The righteous live by faith. But after that, we looked at Jonah. I saw him as the pouting prophet. Why? Because God said, Jonah, or I said, uh, yeah, Jonah, I want you to go and preach a message of repentance to the Ninevites, warn them of my judgment. And Jonah did not want to go because he knew the character of God. And that's another takeaway from us from the prophets. It's a major takeaway, understanding the character of God. And this great declaration in Jonah, one of the great declarations in all of Scripture concerning the character of God. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in mercy, and one who relents of disaster. I knew, God, you were going to show compassion to them. Can you tell me where else in the minor prophets we've seen this? The same statement. And this is a test. We just saw it in Joel. We just saw it in Joel, the encouragement to, to repent and relent, and God will re repent, and God will relent of his judgment. After that, we looked at the book of Malachi. He's the prosecuting prophet. Malachi is a disputation speech. And in it, God brings up various disputes with the nation, all kinds of disputes, and they respond, and he answers them. And so this is the key verse. From the days of your fathers, you have turned away from my statues and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. But you say, how shall we return? And so God brings up a dispute. Uh, an issue, and they dispute it, and God answers them. Now we find ourselves in the book of Joel. Joel is the heralding prophet. The heralding prophet, and Joel's basic message, and we need to walk away from our study of Joel with this idea that there is a coming day of the Lord when God is going to act in judgment on the nations. And so you need to repent and get ready. There is a coming day of the Lord when Jesus is going to return and act in judgment. He will exalt the humble, humble those who have exalted themselves and establish his rule upon earth. And you and I want to be ready for that day. And that is my heart as a pastor to say to us, we need to be ready because that day is coming. You may not be alive then. You may have already died and been in the grave, but he is coming and you will be raised from the dead. Right? All of that is in the future. But we want to be ready for his return. Joel 2 verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. And so over the past several weeks, we have been blowing the shofar. Hopefully that will stick when you think of the book of Joel. And my repeatedly having the shofar blown. 
warning them of what's to come. The day of the Lord is coming. I have been developing a timeline for us. A very simple timeline. Why? So we get a sense of how things are going to unfold. But I have not gone into all the details of this timeline because I fear that we get lost in the details and we miss what we need to lay hold of. We miss what we should see clearly, and that is the day of the Lord. There is a future day of the Lord that will culminate history. Isaiah, too, he speaks of it as a day of reckoning. That's what he calls it. There's a coming day of reckoning when God is going to humble the proud and exalt the humble. And here it is here. We would be on this timeline somewhere in here looking ahead to this day of the Lord. Christ's second coming, the period before it, this seven-year tribulation culminating in the battle of Armageddon, uh, 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 Armageddon right in here. And when Christ returns, the establishment of his rule. And let me say this, and it's going to be one of my emphases at the end. He will take up the nation of Israel in a special way. There have been past biblical events known as a day of the Lord when God acted in judgment. And that's why I have this back here. Instead of day of the Lord, I should have a day of the Lord. There were multiple days of the Lord. And that's what we saw in Joel chapter 1. There was this devastating locust plague in which God acted in judgment and the people were called upon to repent. But the idea is this, this locust plague was simply a harbinger, a foreshadowing, a warning of worse things to come. And so the idea is you've experienced this. Let it sensitize you and prepare you ultimately for this culmination of history. And that's where the book of Joel ends up. Joel chapter 3 is this culminating day of the Lord when God acts in judgment, defeating the armies of the world. It is the battle of Armageddon. And the only place you'll find that phrase in particular used is Revelation 16. But Joel 3, do we have our bearings The seriousness of all of this? Hopefully when we're done looking at our passage, we'll have a heightened sense of understanding all of this. So let's look at some of this. Chapter 3, verse 1. Your Bible should be open. And I'm having problems with my clicker. So Jules, if you would move me up one, please. Thank you. For behold, in those days and at that time, When I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations. And I'm going to bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land." And so verse 1 tells us that God is going to gather the nations for judgment when he restores the fortunes of Judah and Israel. 
And that restoration takes place after their repentance and during this time of the day of the Lord. And that's how Joel chapter 2 ended. There was this repentance and this talk of restoration. And we spent some time talking about that restoration of Israel. We went to what is to me one of the great prophetic prophecies, Ezekiel 36. And he speaks in great detail of this coming restoration. When God is going to bring Israel to repentance... He is going to cleanse them, giving them a new heart and a new standing, and he's going to bestow his spirit upon them so that they can walk in obedience, and he will bless their land as he brings them back into it. That's Ezekiel 36, this restoration. And while God is dealing with his people, he's not only dealing with his people, but he's dealing with the world. And so on the day of the Lord, all the nations are going to be gathered for judgment to the valley of Jehoshaphat. The valley of Jehoshaphat. Verse 2, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there. The Valley of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat means Yahweh judges. It's also spoken of in this chapter as the Valley of Decision. And so the Valley of Jehoshaphat is where God is going to act in judgment and decisions, ultimate decisions are going to be made concerning a person's destiny and really the whole destiny of history. The valley of Jehoshaphat is that location where, as it says in verse 2, God enters into judgment with the nations. And you can read the commentaries. They try to figure out where is it located. Some want to say the Kidron Valley right outside Jerusalem. I happen to think it's Megiddo further north in Israel which is where the battle of Armageddon takes place. And I understand Joel 3 to be about this ultimate final battle when Christ returns. And so at the valley of Jehoshaphat, God is going to enter into judgment with the nations. And why? This perhaps is going to surprise you. Why does God enter into judgment with the nations? Notice verse 2. I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and they have divided up my land. They have also cast lots for my people, traded a boy for a harlot and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. And so Joel tells us here that God is going to enter into judgment with the nations because of their treatment, or I should say mistreatment of Israel. And it's interesting in these verses how God describes his relationship with Israel. He speaks of them as what? My people. My inheritance, which means my special possession. He speaks of their land as what? My land. 
And so God is going to enter into judgment with the nations because of their despicable, deplorable treatment of Israel. And he delineates that. They have cast lots for my people. They traded a boy for a harlot. They sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Now, in what follows, verses 4 through 8, and I'm not even going to have us read verses 4 through 8. What Joel does is he takes up in particular the Phoenicians and the Philistines and their despicable actions towards Israel. So he just singles in on a couple of nations. I'm not going to have us read that. I want to continue this idea of this final battle. And Joel takes that up again in verse 9. And what's interesting as he takes it up again, beginning with verse 9, calling the nations to the valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley of decision for judgment, there is imperative. Now listen to this. There is imperative after imperative. There is command after command. And I think what we need to take away from it is this, brothers and sisters. God is in control. All right, as all of these things unfold and as these commands are being uttered at the end of this age, the day of the Lord, God is in control and people are going to think everything's been cut loose. Nobody's in control. And the truth is God is working out his purposes. He's going to do it then. And let me encourage you, he is doing it now. Is he not? Oh, we struggle with that. It's like that song, I will wait on you, I will wait on you. Chris, I keep coming back, I guess, to that song, but it's one thing to sing it. It's another thing to live in the difficulties and wonder when is God going to do something about this as week turns into month, turns into year. So notice God calling the nations to the valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley of decision Proclaim this among the nations, imperative. Prepare a war, imperative. Rouse the mighty men, imperative. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. Now, that, that verse 10 may surprise you because when we think of Christ and his rule, it talks about beating our implements of war into plowshares and pruning hooks. And here it's just the opposite. As the nations gather, there is this encouragement to do whatever they can to prepare for war. Beat your plowshares into swords, your pruning hooks into spears. Get ready. Do whatever it takes. And let the weak say, I am a mighty man. Psych yourself up. I think that's the idea. Psych yourself up as you come into this last battle. Hasten and come, imperatives, all you surrounding nations. Gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Probably talking, I think, of these mighty nations. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. 
And so this use of agricultural imagery, and I just love the Old Testament for this very reason, the imagery that it brings to what it has to say. And so there's this imagery, this agricultural imagery of a time of great harvest. And the idea is this, the time is ripe for the judgment of God. The time is ripe. The time has come. The time has come. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord, there we go, is near in the valley of decision. Valley of decision is the valley of Jehoshaphat. The sun and moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. Why? Because of all the devastation that's taking place. The Lord roars from Zion, utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth tremble. Would you read verse 16 with me? The Lord roars from Zion, utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth tremble. A lion's roar. Here, there's been some sort of kill. Are they scavenged this? jungle and you heard that you would tremble yeah how do i get out of here the roar lord roars from zion and utters his voice from jerusalem and the heavens and the earth tremble why why tremble why tremble because the lord is going to act in judgment The Lord is going to act in judgment and there will be this devastation and destruction and death that is unfathomable, absolutely unfathomable. That's why tremble as these nations have gathered to go to war against God, against his anointed Jesus Christ. Tremble, tremble because you are about to meet your end. You are going to meet your end. You can psych yourself up and the weak and say, I am strong, and you can do whatever you want to as it comes to preparing for that battle. But you will not stand, and you will not win. Can I hear a hallelujah? You ought to be shouting hallelujah because it speaks ultimately to Christ's victory over a rebellious mankind. And yes, it's rather shocking, and we're not used maybe to this kind of description, but that is when Jesus Christ establishes his rule in its fullness. It's what we long for. It's what should beat within our breast and be our highest thoughts in some ways, the glory of Jesus Christ established upon this earth should be our greatest desire to see him given his proper place one of our great desires now this battle i believe is described in revelation revelation 16 talks about the battle of armageddon that specifically is said this battle and i think chapter 19 describes jesus return so we're going to read a part of revelation 19 This battle in the end, and notice the details as they're given. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. It's a righteous war. His eyes are a flame of fire, 
And on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, speaking of the death that will take place. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. It's his word, his spoken word, which brings about their defeat. That is his power. So that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress, notice this, of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. That's what he's carrying out, the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And that will be established clearly on that day. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, come, assemble for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast. Who's the beast? The Antichrist. We read of him in the Old Testament. We read of him in Paul. Paul warned of the coming of the Antichrist. And when he arrives on the scene, Paul is saying things you better really pay attention And the kings of the earth and their armies assemble to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, the Antichrist was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Oh, this final battle, this battle of Armageddon. It's shocking, isn't it? It should shock you with your sensitivities, with your modern sensitivities. And the most of us have never experienced anything like this. And so it's so hard for us to maybe even accept it. This this reality of what's going to take place. Their page uh, got questions. What is the battle of Armageddon? According to the futurist interpretation of Revelation, which is our view, which is my view, I believe it's describing these end-time events. The battle of Armageddon will be a real battle in the future, near the end of the tribulation. Demonic influences will cause the kings of the earth to gather their armies for an all-out assault on Jerusalem. The Antichrist will be leading the charge. Jesus Christ will return to earth with the armies of heaven. His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. He will defeat the forces of evil. He will cast the Antichrist and the false prophet into the lake of fire. He will bind Satan, and he will set up his kingdom on earth for a thousand years. At Armageddon, the Lord Jesus Christ treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. What a phrase. And how does it conclude? And all things will be made right. There is a hope for the righteous in the end. Right? The warning in many ways goes to those who have not bowed the knee before Jesus Christ because there is a day coming. There is a day coming. What day is it? The day of the Lord. 
when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In fact, I, I mentioned for the humble, they'll have God's favor. That's actually how Joel 3 ends. Joel 3 ends speaking of God's restoration of Israel. And we read in Joel 3, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy, and strangers will pass through it no more. I think the idea is this. No longer will the armies march back and forth over Jerusalem because they have repeatedly over the centuries. No more. Not at this point. And in that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water, and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. Egypt will become a waste, and Edom will become a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah, in whose land they have shed innocent blood. But Judah will be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem for all generations and I will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. And so this future restoration of Israel, this last phrase, the Lord dwells in Zion. Right. That's Jerusalem, Israel, the Jews. In a unique way, the Jews are God's special people and possession. And that is because of promises made to Abraham and to David concerning them. Yes, we enter into the benefits of those covenants and those promises, but there's a special place for the Jews as God has made promises to them. Let me make application. We've got to say, how, how does this impact us? And I've already talked somewhat how the Prophets should impact us. How should this impact us? Number one application, Israel plays a central way, uh, role. They are in a unique way God's special people and possession. And I have here a statement from Romans 11 where Paul speaks of this as a mystery. And Paul says this as he's talking about Israel's rejection at one point of the Messiah. And the question is, is, is the word of God going to be fulfilled? What about these promises? And so this declaration, Paul says, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, but a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And I think the fullness of the Gentiles is talking at that time, the day of the Lord, the culmination of things. And so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer is going to come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sin. And so Israel has a special place. Maybe for some of you that's new. It's like, well, I, I never heard that. I never heard such teaching. Well, I think that's what Joel 2 is telling us and a lot of other passages in Scripture as we properly understand them. Application number two, history is moving with purpose to a climax. There is a coming day of the Lord. 
Oh, be, be, be encouraged. History is moving under his hand. And it's moving towards a culmination. And at that culmination, Jesus Christ is going to establish his rule and its fullness. And those who have rejected it will face his judgment and wrath. And those who have embraced him will find themselves entering into his glory. Psalm 2, I've got some of Psalm 2 here. Psalm 2 is, is a coronation psalm, I believe, of, of the king of Israel, and it's clearly messianic. Notice what it says. Why are the nations restless and the peoples plotting in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let's tear their shackles apart and throw the ropes away from us. Let's do away with all of this. Notice verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify in them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. God laughs at the attempts of mankind to brush away his plans, and he allows it in a certain sense, but there will come that day when mankind comes in rebellion, this culmination of things, that, that rebellion will definitely be put down. Now, you want to be on the right side of that all, don't you? I hope so. In fact, I know so. We do. Application number three, God is righteous and judges sin. That, that's Joel, but that's the prophet's. God is, is righteous and judges sin. I fear for today's church. I fear for us that sin is, is, is rather something we lightly enter into. Instead of seeing these warnings and these ideas, God is a righteous God. He is a holy God. And only those ill-advised or foolishly would disobey him would not seek to honor his rule in their lives. And that's true for us as believers. We talked about that last week. Jesus is the ark we enter into to be delivered from the judgment of God. But because we're delivered from the judgment of God, Paul would say, may grace abound, may sin abound, that grace may increase. It's not a, an excuse or a reason then to sin wildly. But when the grace of God lays hold of us in Jesus Christ and we have been regenerate and have a new heart, it's going to impact how we live. And if it doesn't impact how we live, something's wrong in our thinking we're truly born again. Something's got to be dealt with. Application number four, get ready. And I guess in a sense that's what I'm saying. Get ready. Get ready for these things. This is Joel too. yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting and weeping and mourning and rent your heart, not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God. Why? Because he's gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. And so get ready. In Matthew chapters 24 and 25, Jesus takes up this idea of the end. He's asked by his disciples. Chapter 24 is primarily given over to this time of tribulation. 
But you know where Jesus, and maybe you know this, where Jesus ends in chapter 25? His whole focus is, get ready. See, we, we can disagree with some of these details. It's how is it all going to unfold. But it should never, in the discussion of those details, result in a casualness of our part, on our part. We know certain things are definite, and one of them is this coming day of the Lord. Throughout Scripture, there's a coming day of the Lord. And Jesus' teaching was, you got to get ready. you got to get ready. You, got, you read through Matthew 24, that phrase, he uses these different stories to get their attention, these parables. And he repeatedly says, get ready, get ready, get ready. It was December 29, 1972, and I've shared this story with you in the past, but there was a flight that had left New York and was going to Miami, and on the final approach into Miami, they're out over the Everglades, and the pilots noticed the light indicating the nose gear was locked down, did not come on, and so they're concerned. <laughs> we don't know if it came on. They thought it was a burnt-out bulb. And so they put their plane into autopilot at 2,000 feet, and they were working diligently to replace the light bulb. And in the process, one of the pilots turned off the automatic pilot. And so this plane, unknowns to the pilots as they're working to replace this bulb, is slowly descending into the Everglades and crashed in the Everglades. And I think even to this day was the worst aviation disaster ever to occur in Florida. Why? The, the, the pilots were distracted. They weren't paying attention to more important issues. And I, I've said this, I don't know how many times in my working through the, the prophets, that's my heart. That's my concern for my life. I'm just like you. I live in this world, and there are these unending demands on my life. And after a while, instead of having the long look, the biblical look, I'm all wrapped up in the details of life. And somebody always is emailing me or texting me or calling me and saying, hey, I need a little bit more of your time. Anybody else live there? Yeah, that's where we, we can fall into. And all of a sudden, it's like we're not living in light of these great realities. We've all been watching what's happened in Maui. Just absolutely devastating. Uh, they don't know the total death count. And we as a church will probably be sending some monies, if you're interested in helping, raising monies to send to a good church in Maui to help with needs there. But you know what they're saying now? And this is a big part of the discussion. Nobody warned us. Nobody warned us. There weren't these warning sirens. We didn't get anything. Nobody warned us that this devastating fire was coming. Some got the warning, but heads are going to roll over this as far as who's going to be seen as responsible for not getting the warning out to the people on Maui. One of the most devastating, or if the most devastating natural disaster ever to happen on the island. You cannot say you have not been warned. Joel has warned us. 
not just Joel, but other biblical writers, and they've spoken very, very clearly, and they said there's a coming day of the Lord. And ultimately, every person will answer for the conduct of their lives. A coming day of the Lord when the rule of Jesus Christ is established upon earth. Oh, I would hope almost in a sense that the Spirit of God who indwells you leaps within you and just says, amen, amen. We're on the right side of things. Now, if you aren't on the right side of things, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to make sure you bow the knee. And if you've already bowed the knee, today is the day to examine your life and to see, am I living in light of these great realities? Am I doing it? Because you know what's going to happen? Tim's going to come up with our praise team, and we're going to sing a final song, and we're going to go our way. And the danger Tomorrow's going to come and the ring, our, our alarm's going to go off and we're going to get into our week and we're going to live it just like we lived it yesterday and not thought seriously about a coming day 